0: Open up your Bibles to John chapter 16. We only covered verses 12 and 13 as we discussed the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. We ran out of time, which always seems to happen to me. (laughs) But we ran out of time, and so this week I was debating on whether or not to just let those two verses go. Verses 14 and 15. But what do you think I decided as I studied? Well, I, the answer is, uh, as I studied those verses more in more detail, I came to realize that really the Lord was not, in those verses, not only speaking about a fourth ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're discussing the ministries of the Holy Spirit. In verses 14 and 15, He's not only discussing another ministry, which is His glorifying of Christ ministry, but this ministry is His all-encompassing ministry. Everything that the Spirit does by way of comforting believers, which is what we discussed in John 16, uh, 14 and also verses, um, ver- some verses from chapter 15, and everything the Spirit does not only by way of comforting believers but by way of reproving the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, And that we discussed in chapter 16, verses 8 to 11, and everything he does in way of teaching all truth to those who come to Jesus Christ in faith, all of it centers on the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, today, we are going to be looking at only two verses, verses 14 and 15 of john chapter 16 and we're going to be talking about the holy spirit's ministry of glorifying christ his all-encompassing ministry therefore what this means is that most of the material we're going to be talking about this morning is not in your books so get out a little piece of paper maybe lynn will take really good notes and she'll have <laughs> more paper available for you with the notes on and uh, next time but You're going to probably need to take some notes because most of this is not going to be in your books. And what you really need to do is change the outline that we have for lesson 158. 158, Now we have 158 part A, 158 part B, and today is 158 part C. (laughs) I took one lesson and made it into three. But you're going to need to change the outlines that you have, not only for Lesson 157, but also for 158 in your books, to a four-part outline. We're looking at the ministries of the Holy Spirit. First of all, we looked at the Holy Spirit as the comforter, part one. Then we looked at the Holy Spirit as the reprover, that's part two. Last week we looked at part three, the Holy Spirit as the teacher, and today, add this to your outline up there. Today we're going to look at the Holy Spirit, the glorifier, okay? Verses 14 and 15. All right. Everybody get that? If you didn't, you can ask your friend next to you. The glorifier. Part 2 is the reprover. It should be in your books. Page 43, thank you. Page 43. Just add to the outline the glorifier as part 4. All right. Put down your pens, and let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Would you all bow with me? Okay, Nancy, what? All right. Well, you can get it from Shirley. We'll be happy to share it with you. Okay. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much for being our sustainer and our Savior and our sufficiency. We thank you, Lord, for the promise that one day, because of the shed blood and death of your Son, we will be presented in him, faultless before your throne, that each of us who has put our faith in Jesus Christ will gather there with unspeakable joy in our hearts, and and we will look upon him who first loved us, even while we were yet at enmity with him. And we will join in that heavenly choir that sings the redemption song giving all of our praise to him and casting our crowns at his feet and desiring with overflowing hearts to be his joyful servants without sin and in a place without sin for all of eternity. Oh, Lord, how we look forward to that day. And now we commit ourselves to you for whatever it is that your spirit will do here this morning. Take this atmosphere and make it your own. Hallow it, and make your name be hallowed here. May nothing here defile. We ask that you would discourage every hindering spirit. May we turn our thoughts entirely to you. And Father, we ask for a day of delight, a day of rich things as we explore your word. And we ask these things so that our Savior would be lifted up And glorified. And we ask these things knowing that they are indeed in your will. Amen. Well, let's begin by reading those two verses. John 16, starting with verse 14, just two verses where the Lord says, This is his glorifying ministry. If you want to write in your Bible and make a little bracket there, he says, Of the Spirit, he shall glorify me. For he shall receive of mine and shall shew it unto you. Remember that word, shew? All things that the Father hath are mine. What a statement. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he, the Spirit, shall take of mine and shall shew it unto you. We have learned that the purpose for much of the upper room discourse was that the Lord might prepare his disciples, his 11 faithful disciples, for his departure. He had told them that he was soon leaving them, and, his, and they were very distraught over that news, weren't they? And so his sermon here, the upper room or the farewell sermon, was intended to lift the The heaviness of their sad hearts. It was given with the intention of having a very special effect of consolation. And one of the most consoling of the truths that the Lord gave to his men on this night, the very night of his arrest, was the prediction of the coming comforter the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. And we find here in verses 14 and 15 that they climax that promise. You might remember back in chapter 14 of John, we discussed how the English word for comfort suggests the idea of encouragement. It suggests the idea of consolation in the time of grief and, and um, trouble. Remember how he started this sermon? Let not your hearts be... Troubled. He's comforting them. He's encouraging them. However, do you also remember that we talked about the original word in Latin? I know you do. <laughs> it comes from conforte, which means what? With strength. The word carries the idea not only of encouraging and consoling and soothing, but it carries the idea of strengthening and helping. And that is actually the idea of the term as it was used by the Lord here. He is saying to his men when he, the strengthener, the helper, is come. And that should have really been great news for his disciples. Even today, there is no one who is a disciple of the Lord who does not find himself or herself in constant need of strengthening. Don't we? Every day? Your husband, if your husband is a believer, he needs strengthening from the Spirit every single day. Your children, your believing children need strengthening. It's true of every true local church leader who's attempting to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. All the followers of Christ need the strengthening power of God. And we need it on a daily basis. I don't know about you, but I sure need it on an hourly basis. The strengthening power of Christ, of the Spirit. Now, the nature of the strengthening of the Comforter is surprising to many people. You notice that the passages in John's Gospel about the coming ministry of the Spirit in these passages that we've been discussing now for going on our fourth week, has it dawned on any of you that when he promised his men that the Comforter was going to come and strengthen them and help help them and encourage them, did you notice that he never spoke of the Comforter coming to perform any miracles? He didn't say that, did he? That's, that's interesting to think about. Now, there would be some. There would be some miracles. The book of Acts tells us that there were some healings. There were a few deliverances from demonic spirits. There was an earthquake. And there are three times in the book of Acts when believers spoke to others to share the gospel spoke to others in language that they had languages that they had not previously known but when the lord jesus consoled his men with what the spirit would do for them when he came on the day of pentecost he did not mention any miraculous works and that is very interesting isn't it I think it's interesting, especially in light of the fact that so much of Christendom today puts the emphasis of the Spirit's ministry on what? The miraculous. On healings. If you don't believe me, turn on your TV. On healings, on tongues, on deliverances. But what does the Lord Jesus say about the nature of the Spirit's strengthening Spirit? That's all I'm interested in knowing. I want to know what the, what the Lord says about his ministry. That's what we need to know, and he tells us. We learned in verse 13 in our last lesson that the nature of the Spirit's strengthening ministry would be a guidance into truth, all truth. In other words, the strengthening ministry of the Holy Spirit will be his teaching ministry. How are you strengthened in your Christian life? By some miracles? No, by the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's how we are strengthened. By the Word of God, the Holy Spirit using the Word of God to teach us. That's where I get my strength. This is my daily bread, right? I hope it is for you too. Well, the Lord then gives us the, uh, the content of the strengthening truth of the Spirit's teaching ministry more specifically. At the conclusion of verse 13 and also in the verses that we just read, verses 14 and 15. At the end of verse 13, he tells his men that that truth that the Spirit will come and teach will include prophetic teaching. He says he will show you what? Things to come. And we talked last time about how important prophecy is in the New Testament Scripture. We know how important it is in the Old Testament Scripture, but it is also very important in the New Testament Scripture. And I told you, don't ever come to me and say, I'm not very interested in prophecy. Why? Well, because that automatically means you're not interested in 20% of the New Testament and one-third of the entire Bible. So don't say that to me, okay? Because you'll just see me go like this. hmm (laughs) It's like when you say the book of Revelations, right? (laughs) Or when you call the Holy Spirit it. You'll see me cringe. But prophecy is important. The Lord here says it is. But then, okay, then in concluding his words about the coming Spirit, the Lord, in verse 14, adds these words. He says, he, speaking of the Spirit, he shall glorify me. For he will re- shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. I'm just going to say show, because that's what we're used to. Remember, show means like show and tell. Put the two words together and it's shoe. <laughs> he, he, what he hears from God, he tells to us. So, in other words, in that verse, he is saying the truth will, that will be revealed by the Holy Spirit will be Christ-centered. Isn't that what he said? He shall glorify Me, because he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. What's he going to do? Glorify Christ. So the subject of these final two verses of the ministries of the coming Holy Spirit is his glorification ministry. And who is it he's come to glorify? Himself? No, just like Christ came to glorify the Father, the Spirit came to glorify Christ. Make no doubt about it. The Lord is clearly teaching that He, Christ, will be the emphatic subject of all of the Spirit's guidance, His teaching ministry. He will be the dominant subject. Now, that is very significant. When you think of the fact that literally... The Holy Spirit could have come here to teach believers of anything, right? Could have taught us. I mean, he is one of the God members of the Godhead. He literally could have come to teach us about anything. He could have taught us about all the great te- de- details of heaven. How many of you would like to know more about our future home in heaven other than what we have in Revelation 21, 22? I mean, we all do. We, we'd like to know more. He could have taught us more. But did he do that? No, he gave us just what we need. He could have taught us about the veiled mysteries of things under the earth, which personally I'd rather not know about. He could have taught us about the, a whole lot more about the uh, creation than just this, the first two chapters of Genesis, couldn't he? How God, how God created everything. He could have spent more time teaching us about that. He could have taught us about ages past, What did Have you ever thought about this? I know you lay awake at night thinking about this, but would you ever wonder what God did, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, before they created the universe? Because they go back to the beginning. What did they do before? He could have taught us what they did before. He could, oh my, think about this. He could have taught us about the depths of human nature. You talk about a divine psychologist who really understands the human mind well, I'm kind of glad he didn't teach us more about our, our human nature and depravity. But he, he could have taught us things that would just literally have been mind-boggling, couldn't he? But what we find instead of those kinds of subjects being the dominant note of the Spirit's New Testament teaching, what we find... In New Testament revelation is exactly what Jesus said in verses 14 and 15. The Spirit's guiding, teaching, strengthening, ministry centers on a person. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And by the way, the literal Greek translation of verse 14 puts the me emphatically forward. So literally in Greek, verse 14 says me he shall glorify me. He shall glorify. So here's a connection. When you put this together with, with verse 13. The Lord is saying, how be it when he, the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. Dot, dot, dot. Verse 14. Me. He shall glorify. So when he's speaking about all truth, all truth refers to him. After all, he is the truth, isn't he? I'm the way, the truth and the life. What is apparent, then, is that the Lord Jesus is not just a third subject of the Spirit's comforting, reproving, and teaching ministries. It isn't that when the Spirit comes, and of course, in our time, He's already come, but He's talking future to His men. It isn't that when the Spirit comes, He will guide you, men, into, number one, all the truth, number two, things to come, and number three, oh, by the way, He will also glorify me. It's not that glorifying Christ is a third subject. That's not the case at all. It is that the glorification of Jesus Christ is the emphasis of all the truth that the Spirit would teach. And he is the emphasis, the dominant subject of all the things to come that the Holy Spirit is going to reveal in the New Testament. Everything that he will unveil. Everything that the Spirit will reveal, everything that He will disclose to the apostles, and then they will then preach it and write it down, will focus on the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. There's hardly another passage in the Scripture that gives to us a plainer, clearer statement as to the primary subject matter of your entire New Testament than this verse. And that's why I couldn't just skip over it. (laughs) We had to dedicate a whole lesson to it. We have here, what we have here is the Lord himself giving us an infallible explanation of what will predominate in everything that we read in the 27 books that make up our New Testament. Now, if someone ever comes to you, perhaps as a new believer, they've never studied the Bible before, like I was Uh, Well, I was saved at 21, but I didn't start studying the Bible until I was 32. And someone comes to you, and they've never really studied the Bible, and they say, you know, what is this New Testament all about? What is the answer? You can say the answer in one word. Christ. Very good. What is it all about? It's about Christ. In fact, the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, all 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. What is the subject of the entire Bible? There you go. Christ. When the Holy Spirit truly ministers, He ministers all the truth, and that truth centers on and glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. This means that no one is reading their Bible correctly or understanding the Bible until he comes to see that Christ is the focus. Do you get that? You can't... If you just try to read the Bible and understand what is all this law about and the tabernacle and all this... These genealogies that seem so boring and they're really not. When you, if you just look at it and you, and you don't know what the subject is, you don't understand it. But when you see it and understand that the dominant subject is the Lord Jesus Christ, it all comes alive, doesn't it? Oh, the tabernacle, what is that all about? It's a picture of Christ. Why are the genealogies important? Because they prove to us who Christ was, etc., etc. So you have to understand that Christ is the focus of the entire Bible. And this becomes more apparent when we see the Lord's explanation of how the Spirit would do this. When the Spirit ministers Christ, he makes Christ the emphatic subject of everything, even the prophecy. He's He's the, the dominant Subject of prophecy. And the Lord explains the method in verse 14. It's going to happen this way. He says, He, the Spirit, will receive of mine. And actually that Greek word for receive is much more aggressive than we think of receive. It's actually that He will take the things of mine. And he will show them unto you. He will disclose them. He will see them from the Father, hear them from the Father, and then he will tell them to the apostles, and then through the apostles to all the Lord's people. That is the guidance that the Lord was predicting. And remember we talked about the fact that guidance, the word guidance, suggests a gentle, gradual, step-by-step leadership. Not only does he indwell us, and he's our parakletos, and he's beside us, but he's holding our hand and guiding us. And it's a step-by-step progressive guidance, isn't it? When the Spirit came, the apostles would ex- could expect that they would gradually, step-by-step, be led into all the truth with Christ being the emphatic subject. It would be Christ himself more and more disclosed to them. And isn't that what this study is all about? Every week we come here, and who is disclosed to us more and more? Who's unveiled more and more to us? Until that day when finally, just like on the Mount of Transfiguration, we'll see Him as He is in unveiled glory. But every time we study Him, we see Him unveiled more and more, don't we? It's a progressive revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, when you grow in truth, do you know what you really grow in? Don't we all want to grow in truth, in our knowledge of truth? What When we're growing in truth, what are we really growing in? We're growing in our knowledge and in our understanding and in our love and in our worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if this has been fulfilled, this was a prediction when the Lord gave it to his men on the night of his arrest, as He's walking to Gethsemane. If this has been fulfilled as he predicted, in other words, if the Spirit's glorification ministry of Christ has been fulfilled in the New Testament, then we should be able to see it everywhere in the New Testament. So what we're going to do is what we did last week. We're going to do, get your fingers all nimble. Everybody exercise your fingers, (laughs) except for you. You're holding a baby. We don't want the baby to drop. But right now we're going to look at some illustrations of this truth in the New Testament. We're going to see firsthand what to do with your Bible when you read it, all right? Second Sermon of Peter. Second. Now, last week we looked at Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost. Let's look at his second sermon, and for this you need to go to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. This is after the coming of the Spirit, and it is after Peter and John healed a lame man at the gate, beautiful. Remember that miracle? Okay, after they healed, of course, they didn't heal the man. The Lord Jesus from heaven healed the man. But after that, Peter began his second sermon, verse 12 of Acts 3. And he began his sermon by telling those who had witnessed that miracle of the healing of the lame man at the gate, beautiful, that they should not be marveling and looking so earnestly at Peter and John. He says, don't look at us as though by our own power or holiness we made this man to walk. And he went on to explain, verse 13, that the God of Abraham, is everybody with me? Y'all looking at it? He goes on to explain that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son, Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Pilate wanted to let Jesus go, but they were determined, no, you have to kill him. And then what did Peter say in verse 14? He told his Jewish listeners that in having done that, in having delivered and denied Jesus God's Son, who had they denied? The Holy One and the Just. And they chose a murderer, Barabbas, over Jesus, over the Holy One. He says in verse 15, they killed the Prince of Life. Notice how Peter is progressing in his knowledge of Christ. Now he understands not only God's Son, He's the Holy One, He's the Just One, He's the Prince of Life. And he says, You killed Him, but God hath raised Him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. And then verse 16, he says, It's through faith in this name, the name of this Holy One, Jesus of Nazareth, that this lame man has been healed. You see? Led by and filled with the Holy Spirit, what did Peter do here? What did he do here? He was disclosing, he was revealing the things of Christ that had been taught to him by the Spirit. Peter was really reversing human opinion about Jesus Christ from the human viewpoint Jesus of Nazareth, you know, despicable Nazareth, was just commonplace. Remember how the people of Israel in that day, in Jesus' day, said of him, said of Jesus, Oh, we know him. He's just commonplace. We know his father, the carpenter. We know his mother. We know his sisters and his brothers. They're all here with us. Who does he think he is making claims like this, you know, about being the son of God? They thought of Jesus of Nazareth as commonplace, even actually worse than that. They thought of him as, uh, you know, a despicable Nazarene, uh, Galilean, not very educated, and you know, just, just a common person. But, of course, later on in his ministry, when it became undeniable that he was powerful because of his amazing miracles, what did the leadership of the nation conclude? Well, they had had no choice if they were going to reject him. They concluded that he did all his miracles in the power of Beelzebub, Satan. And so the day came when they did condemn him. And he died the death of a common criminal. So the human viewpoint was that Jesus was only a common man. In fact, worse than a common man because he was a false, another false Messiah. And he died a criminal's despicable death. That's the human viewpoint. However, when the Holy Spirit came, it was his particular ministry to glorify this one. And using Peter, the Spirit spoke. You denied the Holy One, the just. You killed the very Prince of life. Do you have any idea what you people did? Peter was brazen, wasn't he? He says, you have any idea what you did? And who he was? And then what he did? He raised from the dead. Heaven has received him. He is coming again. And it is by faith in him that this lame man has been healed. Don't marvel at us. We're the commonplace ones. <laughs> he's, the, he's the one. He, he was glorifying Christ, wasn't he? The Holy Spirit is glorifying God's Son. And that is exactly what Peter did in his second sermon. And that's exactly what he claimed, by the way, if you look at verse 13. You know, the apostles could hardly say anything. Even the shortest little sayings. Without having the same exact emphasis. Look at chapter 4. If you just move over one chapter in Acts, look at verse 8. Here we see the same two men, Peter and John, and they're making their defense. Imagine this. They're making their defense before the very same council that had condemned Jesus to death. What council was that? The Sanhedrin Council. And Peter and John are standing before this council. They're in trouble for having healed that lame man at the gate beautiful, and so the council has called them before them. Now, <laughs> you know that it is the spirit of God filling a man when his life is on the line and he talks like this. Here's Peter's what he says to this council. Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ, yes, of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you. Oh, that's bold, isn't it? When your life is on the line? Who was filling Peter? You know it was the Holy Spirit. And then what did Peter say next? He quoted from Psalm 118. Remember? We looked at that psalm. It says, This is the stone... Christ is the stone which was set at naught of you builders. You didn't think anything about him, but he has become the head of the corner. Now, why did Peter quote from Psalm 118? How did he even know to quote from Psalm 119? It's because the Spirit of God filling Peter took the things of Christ and disclosed them, unveiled them. They'd been in the Old Testament all along, right? the Jews had read them, they just never really understood that the whole Bible is all about the Christ, the coming Messiah. And there are things indeed about Christ in Psalm 118, which the Jews had not understood before, and that they would reject their own Messiah. And then in verse 2, Peter went on and he talked about glorification. He said, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Wow. Talk about glorifying Christ. No other name. What does it mean to glorify, by the way? We always say well, we want to glorify you. What does that mean? To glorify the Lord? Hmm? Lift up. It really it really speaks about something's you something's unique. Excellence. When we glorify God, when we glorify Christ, we're glorifying His unique excellence. He is unique, isn't He? His holiness is unique and it is excellent. And we glorify all of His attributes. Here, the Spirit, through Peter, is proclaiming to these people the unique excellence of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. No other name, that's unique. No other name, Given among men, under heaven, whereby we must be saved. Talk about a dogmatic statement. You know, no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. It is the glorification of Christ that Peter... When the the Spirit-led apostles preached, when we read about anything that they preached in the book of Acts, the emphatic note was always, always the Lord. And the same thing is evident in their writings, not just in what they preach, but in their writings. Turn now to Romans chapter 1. Look over at Romans 1. And this is, uh, of course, written by Paul, who was not present when the Lord gave his farewell discourse. Who was he when the Lord gave his farewell discourse? He was still... He was still Saul of Tarsus, a rabid, proud Pharisee. But the Lord had conquered Saul by this time. He had won him over in one blazing moment of glory on the road to Damascus. And now look what this rabid, proud Pharisee says here about himself. Romans 1.1. Paul, a servant. Of Jesus Christ and that word in Greek you all know is doulos. What does it really mean? A bond slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Now, what does the word gospel mean? Good news. Okay, what is the good news? Well, he defines it in verse 2. It is something God promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Hmm, The good news is something that was told before by the Old Testament prophets. The Holy Spirit, you see, can dip into those Old Testament Scriptures and reveal Christ in all of them. Verse 3 tells us the focus of the gospel. The focus is that it concerns who? Concerns his son, God's son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Do you know what the good news is? The good news is Jesus Christ. Yes, the death, burial, and resurrection, glorification of Jesus Christ. Without Him, there would be no good news. The good news concerns Jesus Christ. That is the Spirit glorifying Christ. Now think of some of the things that the Lord Jesus taught the apostles during His earthly ministry with them, which they later wrote about and expanded upon by way of the guiding ministry of the Spirit. For instance, do you remember the beginning of the opposition in Jerusalem by the religious rulers? Where did it all begin? Well, of course, it began when he first cleansed the temple. They didn't like that too much. But the first time we really read of great opposition was after he had healed that man at the pool of Bethesda. Made, Made a big mistake. Not really. The Lord never makes a mistake. But in their eyes, he... Healed him on the Sabbath, and that was absolutely a no-no. He said it was unlawful for anyone to work on the Sabbath. Well, what was the Lord's response to that criticism by the Jews? Remember, he said this statement, and we kind of scratched our heads. He said, the Lord worketh hitherto, and I work. And the apostles must have said, what in the world does that mean? How does that explain his healing of that man at the pool of Bethesda uh, on, the, on the Sabbath? The Lord worketh hitherto, and I work. Now, when we studied that, we developed that. And the only way we developed it is because we went into the New Testament epi- uh, epistles to explain it. But the apostles didn't have all that. And the fact is that the Lord did not expand on his explanation of it. Because he knew he would send the Spirit and the Spirit would reveal that to the apostles and they would um, write statements like this. Colossians 1 verses 16 and 17. Paul wrote this, By him, by Christ, are all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible or invisible, whether they be dominions, principalities, powers, or thrones. All things are created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. So that sort of explains, doesn't it? My Father worketh hitherto, and I work, because He is none other than the Creator. He is one with His Father. The Holy Spirit was revealing. Through the pen of the Apostle Paul, the things of Jesus Christ. When he is come, the Lord said, he, the Spirit, will take of the things of mine and he will show them unto you. Now think of one of the Lord's concluding statements when he said, all authority is given unto me. All authority, Lord? All authority? Does that include authority out there in the stellar heavens? Does that include include, uh, uh, authority in the universal heavens? Does that include authority up there, you know, in the throne room of God? Does this include um, authority over all of earth and under the earth? Does it? You answer it. Yes, it does. (laughs) You see, mankind, mankind only saw someone who physically looked just like any other man. There's nothing special about the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they saw him die the despicable, shameful death of crucifixion as a common criminal. But the Holy Spirit discloses, he reveals the truth of Christ throughout the New Testament. Now, for homework, I, you know, ladies, I didn't think we'd have homework questions. That was going to be my resurrection present to you all. (laughs) No homework. But I just thought of one. Take some passage, pick your own passage in the New Testament, and... Look at it, study it, and see how it reveals, discloses, unveils the glory of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's your homework. That's it. One question. That's not too hard. You have two weeks to do it. Pick any passage and look at it in light of Jesus Christ. the world thought he was just, you know, commonplace. In Philippians, in Philippians, um, Paul speaks. Uh, the Spirit speaks through Paul, and he says, uh, he says, yes, this is true. You know, being in the form of God, Christ thought it not something to be grasped. He did not have to maintain the appearance of his equality with God, although he is equal with God, yet what did he do? Paul says, through the Spirit, he willingly humbled himself by taking on the likeness of of man, Yes, he appeared just as a common man. He became willingly God's obedient servant, willing to even die and die the death of the cross. Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. That was what was going on, you see, that men couldn't see. They saw an ordinary man, but what was going on behind the scenes that the Spirit knew about? They knew this common man really is God. And he willingly humbled himself so that he could die for for us. And um, remember state the Lord's statement, all authority is given unto me? Now notice what the Spirit inspired Paul to write. After the humility of Christ in Philippians, then what does he go on to say? He says, wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name, unique excellence, a name which is above everything. Every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here, and all these are just examples, so you don't have to get hung up if you didn't understand them. But all I'm trying to show you is that the Spirit of God is taking the things of Christ and he is revealing them. And you have the exact same thing going on with all of the prophetic passages. In the New Testament, there cannot be anything that is more strengthening, especially in the day in which we are living, can be nothing more strengthening to the Christian than to read about the future and know that everything ends well. It's like getting a book and knowing that it ends happily ever after, because without the prophecy, without knowing how it ends, how would you be feeling right now in the world we're living in? terrified we would be we would be terrified and the world should be terrified oh, yeah. yeah the world without christ should be terrified we yeah. are living in perilous which times which one you want to try it on the lord is coming soon but we as christians we know the end we know the victor the victory's okay. already been won we are overcomers it's going to end well and does that not strengthen you it strengthens me I don't think I don't know how anything can be more uplifting, more strengthening. For example, than the fifth chapter of Revelation. Go there real quick. Talk about prophecy. Uh, Revelation five. How can be anything be more uplifting than this? John, you know, wrote Revelation. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, Sunday. And he sees this vision of all these multitudes of angels, myriads and thousands upon thousands of angels. And he sees these four magnificent, strange <laughs> living creatures and the four and twenty elders around the throne of God. And then a strong angel comes forward holding a scroll or a book. And that book is sealed with seven seals. And the book, the scroll, has writing on both sides of it. It represents a title deed to planet Earth. And the angel cries out for any man in heaven or on Earth who is worthy to open those seals to that book. And not only is there no man found worthy in heaven or Earth to open the seals of the book, but neither is there anyone found worthy to look at the writing thereon. And the Apostle John is watching all this, seeing all this in a vision, and he realizes the severity of the moment, and he weeps much that there is no man found worthy to open the book or even read it. Because that means there's no one found worthy in heaven or earth to redeem mankind, to redeem this earth of the curse it has been put under. But an angel comes to John. There he is weeping his heart out. An angel comes to John and he says, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the seed of David, has prevailed to open the book. And John looks and instead of seeing a lion, what does he see? A lamb as if it had been slain. And the lamb approaches the throne. You know what, ladies, we're going to see this. We are going to see this. The 24 elders represent the church. We're going to be there. This is after the rapture. Oh, can, can you imagine? The lamb approaches, and he takes that book in his right hand. And when he does, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fall on their faces, and they cry out, You alone are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof and to look and read thereon. And then there's this myriad of voices of angels and they all cry out, What, ladies? Worthy is the Lamb to receive glory and honor and blessing and power and majesty. And then there are others who cry out, and this will be you and I, so get ready, ready to sing the redemption song. Others cry out, for thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. I shouldn't have looked at Joanne because you just made me start crying, Joanne. <laughs> She's over there, I could see her praising the Lord. What a day that is going to be. Well, what is happening here? What is happening? The Holy Spirit is taking of the things of Christ and He is disclosing them in prophetic revelation just like Christ said He would here in verses 14 and 15. Right? You know, these are the last things He says, basically, before He goes into the garden and prays and then He's arrested. So this is important to know that the Spirit's ministry is all about glorifying Christ. Now... Someone might be thinking, well, Catherine, what about all the practical subjects of the Bible? How are they Christ-centered? You know, what about where the rubber meets the road? That kind of teaching. Like James. (laughs) Talk about a practical book. What about the law? What about human morals? What about the management of our money? What about the rearing of our families? What about succeeding on the job? Or teaching us about controlling our our tongues or our temperaments and how to um, how to deal with forgiveness and on and on and on. We could go with all the practical subjects. Every one of those subjects is discussed in the revelation given by the Holy Spirit, right? In the New Testament. But every one of them is given secondarily. No epistle opens. You don't turn to the first chapter of any epistle... Uh, about managing your money, for example. Every single one of the epistles opens with these marvelous, wonderful, majestic, doctrinal explanations. And then, you see, then the practical subjects are brought in. But they are always brought in as you and I are in Christ. There's a center, and the center is Christ. And in Christ, in Christ, we talk about our marriages. And in Christ, we talk about how should we, as Christians, manage our money and control our tongues and our temperaments and our anger and our, you know, how should we forgive a brother, et cetera, et cetera, deal with temptation and spiritual warfare and all those other subjects. But they're secondary. The glorification of Christ is primary. Now, if anyone thinks that all of this Christ-centeredness is just too narrow and that the real emphasis should be on God the Father, anybody think about that? Well, it should be the glorification of God the Father. That, you see, is why the Lord ends this teaching the way he does in verse 15, by assuring his men all things that the Father hath are mine. So he's saying, that is why I said to you that the Spirit will take the things that are mine and show them to you. Because all things that are mine are the Father's. What he is doing here, and I don't like to use the word defending, but I don't know of another word to, do, to use. But Jesus is essentially defending the legitimacy of him being the focus. It is legitimate that Christ is the focus. It's appropriate. And it is not at all detracting from God the Father. Because all that the Father has is Christ. What does that mean? Well, you fill in the blank, okay? <laughs> all that of Christ's attributes are the Father's attributes. All of the Father's attributes are Christ's attributes. All of the Father's glories are Christ's glories. All of His blessedness. All of His future his possessions, his rights, all of his, intention, his intentions. All those things that are the Father's are also Christ's. So the Holy Spirit can take of anything of Christ, and guess what? It is of oh, the Father, it's the Father's as well. Remember what Jesus had said earlier? He that honoreth the Son honoreth the Father. Father. So if we're glorifying Christ, we're also glorifying the Father. And he that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father who sent him. Now, by the way, can you imagine any creature, human or angelic, presuming to make the kinds of statements that Christ made just here? Back in, I should go back to John. You can go back to John. 16. Can you imagine anyone making these kind of mass message uh, pre, uh statements, excuse me. If anyone and I've heard this, if anyone wonders about the Lord Jesus' own estimation of himself. I've heard people say, have you heard this? Well, Jesus never claimed to be God. You hear that? If anyone wonders, I mean, can you imagine any creature making the kind of statements that Jesus made about himself? I think back at John ten thirty, where it said, the Father and I are one, there's one right there. But just look at some of these. Can you imagine anyone saying, I will send the Holy Spirit to you? (laughs) If that isn't a claim to deity, I don't know what is. I will send the Holy Spirit. Um, That's in verse 7. I think it was of this chapter. And then he says, when I send him to you, he will glorify me. Me, he will glorify is what he literally says in Greek. Now, that's pretty dogmatic about being deity, isn't it? Me, he will glorify. (laughs) I'll be the emphasis of all the Holy Spirit's teaching, guiding, strengthening ministry. And then he says in verse 15, all that the Father hath is mine. You talk about statements that are unbelievable in their magnitude. Show just those to anyone you know who says, well, Jesus never said he was God. Well, I'm going to close um, with two. We're doing pretty well on time here. I'm going to close with two applications of what the Lord is saying. And I think by showing you these, we'll be blessed. Number one, I have a question. After discussing the Lord's words here of verses 14 and 15... Can you tell me and I want you to do this when you listen to teaching on television or tapes, books, whatever you whatever you put before your eyes or your hearing, tell me what spirit-filled teaching and preaching is going to major on. All right? What's it going to major on? You answer that. Yes. It wasn't a very hard question. Spirit-filled Spirit-led teaching is always going to major on Christ. What will be what will be the conspicuous note of teaching and preaching that's truly spirit-filled will be Christ. Now you know that even good-intentioned teaching by good Christian people that fails to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ is imbalanced teaching. There's good people out there teaching. But if they're not focused on Christ, their teaching is imbalanced. To the degree that any preacher or any teacher fails to bring men face to face again and again and again throughout the entirety of his ministry, to the degree that he fails to keep confronting his flock With Christ, in any message, on any subject, even talking about the management of money, to that degree, that teaching is not Spirit-led, Spirit-filled, or Spirit-taught. A ministry, you see, will betray itself by the conspicuous absence of Jesus Christ. Now you turn on some of your TV programs, okay, and listen. Is Christ the center? Or is that person the center? Or is maybe even some other Bible character the center? Um, Or is positive thinking the center? Or are you the center? Well, if you do this, positive thinking, you will be successful and rich and wealthy and you will think great things about yourself and you'll have it all. Who's the center? Ask yourself that. If they are talking about a Bible character, that's fine. Talk about Ruth, Esther, David, any one of them. But what should still be the center? Jesus Christ. Always needs to come back to Jesus Christ. Many times, and I know because I have heard this too, many times the Lord's people tend to feel that the very practical subjects are more strengthening. You know, we say, oh, that, that was just so practical. I like to hear preaching and teaching that tells me to do better. I like to hear stuff that tells me to to think positive and to do good and to be like some Bible character. Um, And that's nice. That is nice. But that kind of teaching alone, I highlight that word alone. That kind of teaching alone, there is a place for it. But that kind of teaching alone is deadly. Do you know why? Because that kind of teaching alone inevitably focuses on more and more and greater and greater human effort. It fails to root the victory in the finished work of Christ. Even when we, when we um, studied the Sermon on the Mount, over and over and over again, it was very practical subjects, right? All the things that we looked at. And we always fell short of everything that the Lord told us, you know, about, you know, if you even think something in your mind, you've committed murder if you think bad about someone. And we always fell short. Why? Well, because we do. And where was the focus? The focus was that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. You know, except a man's righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, we all fail, we all fall short. And so the whole, the whole focus, even though that was very practical, the focus was that we need Christ. He is the, the victory is in Him. In, in, it fails in the object of all Spirit-led teaching, which is to magnify the Lord. A Christless pulpit makes for Christless people. Write that one down. A Christless pulpit makes for Christless people. A rightly adjusted ministry... A balanced ministry does not just mention Jesus from time to time. You know, throw in Jesus here and there. Uh, uh, A rightly adjusted ministry is going to major on Jesus Christ. It puts everything into that grid of his person and his finished work on the cross. It majors on the virtues of his sacrifice. It majors on the sufficiency of his grace and the extent of his love. And the prophetic themes, they all focus. They all focus on Christ, on his return and his reign and his kingdom. Now, the second application, and we'll close with this, is that the strengthening that we need, each and every one of us in this room, because we started out talking about how we all need strengthening, don't we? Even the Lord himself needs strengthening in his human body twice. Once after his wilderness temptation, the Lord sent an angel, and then again later this night when he's in Gethsemane. He prays so hard that he literally drops sweats drops of blood, and and he needed strengthening in his human likeness. We all need strengthening. And the strengthening that comes as the Spirit of God ministers the things of Christ to us, that is the strengthening we need. Are you downcast today? Are you, are you troubled? Let not your heart be troubled. That means we do let it be troubled, don't we? Are you troubled? Are you, are you discouraged? Are you despairing? Are you ill and concerned about your health? Maybe your spouse is ill. Uh, Is your soul tempted? Do you feel incapable of just going on sometimes? Do you realize that the thing that will be absolutely the most strengthening to you is for the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your understanding and reveal to you through his word that Jesus Christ is our all-sufficient Savior? That on every level... And in every need, he truly is our good shepherd. He is the lover of your soul. He is your high priest. He is, as we just discussed, the true vine. He is suitable. He is sovereign. He is sufficient. When the Spirit really, really ministers help and strength and comfort to you, is through the reading of the scriptures and through your sitting under Christ-centered preaching and teaching. And then, you know, it's just absolutely inexplic- inexplicable. It's unexplainable. That's easier to pronounce what happens. But it will happen to you, and I hope you have all experienced this. I have many times. Every week I get down, and then I open up the Word of God, and it's an invisible thing. And you can't explain it to somebody else, but it takes place down in the depths of the part of you that is just kind of bent over and bowed down and you feel like I'm just getting weary and well-doing and I can't go on. It will happen to you in that part of your soul. You'll be brought up. You'll you'll read some verse of scripture, the Spirit will just take that and center on Christ, and in a minute you'll just be brought up, you'll stand up straight, you'll feel strong. And the funny thing is and you're ready to go again, you're re energized just like the ever ready rabbit. (laughs) And the funny thing is that your circumstances will not have changed one single bit. They'll still be the same. You might still have cancer. Nothing will have changed in your circumstances, but it will be like the windows were open and, you know, the breath of heaven came in. And there is just suddenly this light in your soul and a joy that floods your heart. What is that, ladies? Have you experienced that? I'm not talking about being slain in the spirit. I'm talking about the spirit taking the word of God and just lifting you up and strengthening you. What is that? It is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit of God as he ministers to you the sufficiency and the love of Jesus Christ who gave his all on your behalf. And the God who gave his son on your behalf. To rescue your soul for all of eternity. How shall he not with him also give you freely all things that pertain to your life and godliness? You know, when we really come to understand that, that is strengthening. That is strengthening. That is true, spirit-filled, spirit-led comfort. Isn't it? It is. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the bread of life, the word of God, which so strengthens our hearts and our minds and our souls and our spirits to be steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the things, the work of the Lord in these evil days. Thank you, Father, for the coming of your spirit, the strong helper who indwells us. We pray that our study here this morning has been Marked conspicuously by his ministry of making the things of Christ known to your people. And Lord, we recognize so often our failure to look full on the face of the Lord Jesus Christ so that the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We pray that for that invisible, almost indefinable work that we all have known on different occasions with having our hearts taken up with the glories and the honor and the majesty and the blessing of our Savior. If any do not know that experience, Father, we pray that your Spirit would convict them and wean us and draw all of us away from the trifles of this earth. And, Lord, I just pray that we can truly be your witnesses, that we can be salt and light, especially this week, this Passion Week, and remind people that it's not Easter, Ishtar. It's the resurrection of Christ that we are celebrating. It's not bunnies and eggs. It's the conquering of death and the grave. May we center on Christ this Passion Week. Lord, we pray these things again knowing that they are in accordance with your word, and we pray to glorify our Savior. Amen. God bless